Hiya. Welcome to my podcast about the third biggest killer of men worldwide, prostate cancer. When I was first diagnosed with prostate cancer, I didn't want anyone to know, allowing fear to silence me. Within days of the diagnosis, however, I did a 360 and decided that something good had to come out of this. I would be prostate cancer's worst enemy by just talking about it whenever I could and to as many men as possible. I could find lots of technical details, but not what would happen to me personally. What were the milestones? What were the problems I would encounter? What emotions would I have to deal with? I just wanted an idea of what to expect. That's when I decided to write about my experiences. So at least I could help somebody else in the future. This podcast is based on my longer established blog called I am the one in free.blog. Check it out. Along the way I've met some incredible people, seen some amazing sights, and had some unbelievable experiences. I do appreciate that for some men, prostate cancer will be devastating. I chose to counter this with my dark sense of humour, which has and continues to get me through it. This does not have to take over your life or run it either. I have learned there is no point in worrying about what I don't know and what I can't change. So, every week, I'm going to be here to share these stories with you. Please like, comment and subscribe. But most importantly, share with a man you care about. I'd heard about prostate cancer. Most men have. I even knew about the heightened risk for black men, which, when adjusted, means that it affects one in three of us. One in three. But this was only meant to happen to old men. Other men. <laughs> that wasn't until it happened to me. I couldn't make these stories up. These are the stories, the good, the bad, and the unbelievable prostate cancer journey. So strap yourself in and let's go. Episode one, Pops. The last time I saw my dad, I was seven years old. Waving goodbye to him from a window, expecting he'd soon return. That's what he said, and that's what my seven-year-old self believed. I was actually fully free when I saw him again. And there, standing in his hallway as he removed his jacket, I glimpsed the top of an adult nappy. I pretended not to notice. It's hardly the epitome of casual conversation, is it? Nice weather today. Pops, where did you get that nappy from? No, I would file it at the back of my mind under useless information. Only, it wasn't useless. 
but it would be some years later before it all made any kind of sense. Three months before this meeting, I had a message on Facebook. Is your dad called Richard Ellis? It was from a woman called Patricia, based in America. Of course, I shut her down with a simple no, assuming it was another elaborate scam trying to lure me in. But a few days later, she messaged me again. This time, she wasn't asking me any questions. She was already stating the answers. Your dad's name is Joseph Richard Ellis. Your full name is Peter X. Ellis. And your date of birth is XYZ. Now she had my attention. Patricia left the number and I called her a few days later. She was lovely and had been a friend of my dad for many years. He was a bit of a technophobe and he had asked her for help in trying to find me a few months before. She gave me his number and said she would only tell him she had found me if I wanted her to. I said it was fine and I would call him. So fine that it took me a whole week to actually dial the number. In that week, I stared at those 13 digits over and over, willing them to give me answers for all the questions I had. Numbers stared back until finally the staring match was over and I decided to pick up the phone. My heart was beating away like a kettle drum. We spoke for over two hours in that first call. And wonderful as it was, it set the tone for future conversations. You see, he was a type of man who'd like to keep the peace and have a simple life rather than rocking the boat and making waves. So he didn't really answer my questions as to where he'd been all my life. From what he did tell me, I suspected that he hadn't contacted me sooner because his wife, who had died some months back. This was confirmed to me by my new sister, Pauline, who was as oblivious about me as I was about her. She'd grown up with him in America, yet his passivity had created a distance between them. I tried to ask him those important questions that the seven-year-old boy in me needed answers to, but he would twist and turn and um and ah. It became very apparent that I was not going to get the responses I wanted, so I just had to leave it. A few weeks later, he sent the airfare for me to visit. I boarded a plane to New York to see my dad for the first time in 35 years. I can't remember much of the flight, a movie I wasn't really watching, a meal I didn't really enjoy, a blanket that somehow made its way into my bag. But my anxious thoughts subsided as soon as we stood in arrivals, hugging for a long time. It was a long time coming. He was excited and animated. It was all the Christmases and all the birthdays for him. He stopped off at his best friend's house so he could show me off, his son. 
After that, it was about a 25-minute drive to Brooklyn, where he lived. His home was a large, two-storey brownstone in a nice neighbourhood. He had a basement that was all his. A proper man cave that, along with the pipework and boiler, housed a self-contained flat. And the workshop. It was that kind of workshop that made you want to roll up your sleeves and break something, just so you could fix it again. He lived on the ground floor, and above that he had two tenants in two self-contained flats above that. (laughs) His living room was like stepping back in time. The style of every West Indian home in the 70s. There was the large, imposing cabinet with the good glasses that no one ever touched. There was an armchair and a three-seater settee, which were covered in factory-moulded plastic covers. Think thick enough to make a sound when tapped. I looked down to see my dad had taken the plastic covering one step further. He'd actually covered the entire living room floor. I mean, if the brother wanted to do away with me, or steal an organ, no one would actually know I was there. It was at the door to this room that he removed his jacket. It was at the door to this room that I glimpsed a future I'd rather do without. Like most men, I'm not a fan of doctors or doctor surgery, and I'm even less a fan of being ill. Something would have to be hanging off, sticking out, split open or bent the wrong way to make a trip to A&E worthwhile. And even then, the waiting time to be seen and final treatment would only strengthen my resolve to not return at any time soon. As Pops wasn't around in my early years, I can't say it was him that toughened me up. Perhaps it was the times my dear sweet mum would discipline my backside for my many transgressions with whatever came to hand. Who knows? I do know that my son Joel will be able to point the finger squarely at me for his toughening up process. When he was much smaller, on his many falls, toys dropping on his toes, toys being taken away from him, or even balloons bursting, he would hear the sweet fatherly phrase, Come on, Joel, man. Stop crying. Man up, boy. He would occasionally pause, and you could almost hear his brain computing. And just when I thought, this is it, the moment he turns from crybaby to baby, his mum would walk in and he'd run straight past me into her soft arms. She would hold him to her bosom and offer soothing words in his ear. Two seconds later, his world was good again and he was right back doing whatever put him in that predicament in the first place, like he'd never learnt a thing. My aversion to doctors wasn't always so. When I was younger, I'd go with my mum to see the lovely Dr. Parbu, Mrs. She had a motherly, slightly wrinkled face, perfect set hair and soft pink lipstick. She looked like a sweet Indian version of Margaret Thatcher. Her office was warm and light and smelt of potpourri. She had two soft chairs by the desk and she'd always have me sit in the chair closest to her, where I was in easy reach for her to cut my cheek while smiling. 
It also meant I was close enough to reach the bowl of sugar-free sweets on her desk. Oh, take two. Take one for your brother, or take one for later. She always listened to what I had to say, and being in that room made me forget I was actually ill. Unfortunately, there were times when the lovely doctor was unavailable, and I'd have to see her husband, Dr. Parbu Mister. He with the semi-bald head and a barcode comb-over. He was gruff and didn't like kids. He made that very clear. His room was dark and cold and smelt like surgical fluid. There was only one chair for the adult and no sweets on his desk. You could have a supplier pen though. He was direct and to the point and had already diagnosed me and semi-filled out the prescription before I'd even made it halfway into the room. Fast forward to my 40s and trying to see a doctor, let alone a regular one you knew by name, was in itself some kind of endurance test. You could make a timed appointment, but the downside being you wouldn't be seen until two weeks later. You could then enter the scrum of the 15-minute daily golden window when you could get a same-day appointment. Or you could be one of those mugs that could queue up early in the morning outside the surgery. Of course, you were never first in the queue, no matter what time you got there. There was always somewhere there before you. And when you joined the queue, you knew you could kiss goodbye to the best part of the morning. It was a few months before my 50th birthday, and I decided I wanted to check up. A health MOT. Check my cholesterol. Check my blood sugar. Check my blood pressure. I was determined to have one. I thought, you know, this is going to be a new change for my 50th. I'm going to get fit. So I could wait two weeks for appointment. No problem at all. I hadn't changed my doctors in over 10 years, even though it was miles away now. So I had to leave work early and get there. And it was almost an hour away in deepest, darkest Peckham. I didn't even know the name of my current doctor, as the original one had long since departed, or maybe even died. I don't even know. The surgery had relocated to a plush new building across the road from the old one. Gone were the old brown desks with the outdated, crumpled magazines to be replaced by a new, stadium-lit, modern surgery with receptionists sitting pretty behind perspex glass. So I walked up to the new reception and gave the receptionist my name and appointment time. She tapped on her keyboard and then her face dropped as if she'd struck lucky on Interpol's most wanted list. I'm so sorry, Mr. Ellis, but the locum doctor hasn't turned up. But I've waited two weeks for this appointment, I sighed. I'm sorry, I can book another one for you but the earliest appointment would be in two weeks' time. I sighed loudly, adding a half-roll eye for effect, and just in case you didn't see it, I did it again. Is there nothing earlier? I said, half angry, half pleading. As you do. Well, you could go to the health clinic by the school. I could book you in for Friday or Saturday. I'll take the Saturday appointment, please. I replied quickly. 
She hit the keyboard a few more times and then proudly announced, that's all been done for you. That Saturday morning, slowly came around and I arrived early. The clinic was large and new and only a handful of people were waiting there at that early hour of the morning. I watched the LED screen scroll along, telling me to get this jab or to get that jab. And then eventually, my name bleeped across the screen. I headed into one of the rooms. Hi, how can I help you today? The doctor asked. I took a seat and made myself comfortable. Well, my 50th birthday is coming up soon, and I thought it'd be a good idea to get a health check. You know, just to make sure that everything's okay. A while ago, well, a good number of years ago, I did have a full blood check and it all came back fine. And I also checked my PSA. And at the time it was high, but then I checked it again and it came back normal. And that was the end of it. The doctor jabbed away at the keyboard with his two index fingers for too long, going through a maze of different menus and drop downs. Eventually, the doctor looked up at me, looking like he'd run a marathon with two red sore fingers. Shall we check the PSA again? He asked. I looked at him. I looked left. I looked right. I looked up and I looked down. I shrugged. Um, okay. I'm here already. So yeah, all right. Why not? With that, he ticked the final box and printed out a few sheets of paper for me to take to the hospital to go and get my blood test. I thanked him and shook his hand unaware that this was the start of a journey I never wanted to or expected to take. (laughs) 